Let's, let's pray with that in mind. God, that is our prayer. That tonight you would, uh, Lord, reveal maybe in our own life, especially in the context of, of love, biblical love, godly love, what we're talking about tonight, where we are being superficial, where we're meeting maybe external standards, but our heart is far from a worshipful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying motive and mentality and thinking. We do pray humbly again tonight, God, that you would grant us eyes to see beautiful things, wondrous things from your law. We're dealing with commands tonight in 1 John 4. Commands of us to live a specific way. In fact, the the repercussions of not loving the way you love shows that we actually don't know you. And we know that if we don't know you, if you do not abide in us, we have no hope. We do not have salvation. As John said in the first chapter, we, we lie, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So I pray, God, that you would truly reveal uh, in your grace areas tonight in our thinking, our living, our acting, God, that is not in accordance with your word and that we would seek to love like you love and and live in such a way that you are revealed in our love for one another. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen. First John chapter four, we're picking up in verse seven through 12 tonight. Chris Hume preached last week. I love hearing Chris preach. I've been able to listen to several of his messages that he shared with me before and he is a, a gifted speaker. He knows the word of God. And last week I want to remind you in case you weren't here and even if you were here, I want to remind you of um, what he spoke about because it, it, John is continuing an argument. He's transitioning into a very important thing. So last week in verses 1 through 6, Chris taught and discussed that we are in a great spiritual war. Because of Jesus' work and victory, Satan has sent out false prophets. Therefore, we have to judge everything according to the gospel of Christ. Things are spiritually dangerous around us because the true gospel is present and therefore Satan is sending counterfeits. Satan deals with counterfeits. It's his MO. It's what he does. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. And all throughout history, from the beginning, you see that this is how Satan works. He seeks to deceive people, lie to them, and get them to believe false things, not just in rejection of God, but actually false things about God. Right? If you go back to the beginning, he's not even like painting a picture of worship this God over here who isn't God. What he seeks to do is make God uh, become visible to you in a way that really isn't a representative of God. Did God actually say, you know, you remember in the garden. And so he's, he's sending out false teachers, false prophets. If you remember uh, last semester when we talked about these, the spirit of the Antichrist and those types of things, you remember that these people were in the church, remember? And they, they ended up leaving the church, going out um, from the church so that it would be clear to those in the church that they were never of them, never among them. And yet, this, this is how Satan works. Again, he, he's got these, these wolves, these false teachers, these false prophets, not making outright big, easy things to decipher as lies, but just painting little pictures. You know, one of the things that we discussed this last Sunday, too, I think a lot about this in the context of suffering. It's fresh in my mind because it's what we're doing on Sunday morning. But a lot of people um, have a, a theology of God that... M- may sound okay. So let's take God's sovereignty, for example, over all things. Uh, and, and you might say, well, God is sovereign. But the way that that functionally works itself out in the way people live is in deism. I, I, I had this argument with somebody the other day that I believe that actually probably the majority, or maybe, that's a, maybe that's a strong assumption, but I would say a lot of professing evangelical Christians in America specifically Say they believe in a sovereign God, but the way they functionally live it out or would explain it is like a deist. And so they would outright reject, well, no, no, you know, deism believes that God created all things, but not everything has a purpose, or, and he's not actively engaged and involved in what's taking place. It's kind of just up to us. Therefore, like 9-11, God didn't know it was going to happen. He, he just, you know, it, it, kind of this allowance thing, which tends to be a pretty broad stroke. And a lot of Christians would be like, no, I don't, I don't believe that God is 
not active in his creation and not active with his children and not active in things like suffering and salvation, all that type of stuff. But when you get in the nitty gritty of it, functionally, a lot of us live in such a way or we try to explain things in such a way of, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. And that's, that's functional deism. And, and so it's a false teaching. I mean, it literally is. Uh, either God is sovereign over all things or, or he isn't. And so that's, that's even, I mean, one of the ways that Satan, I believe, lies and deceives and detracts from God's omnipotence and his omniscience and all of his glorious attributes is by just making little steps of, well, he's, he's not sovereign over all things. That's just one example, right? Or, or he's not actively involved in this. Or did God really say, and you begin to push further and further away from what is biblical truth. And that is what John is warning here. Like, you, if, if you want to be able to have confidence in your relationship with Christ, the effectiveness of your ministry... You've got to, what, sniff out the counterfeits of Satan. And so he's giving a command in the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4. Test the spirits. Test them. Well, how? By what standard? And Chris argued, I believe, biblically according to what John is arguing here, through doctrine. Through doctrine. Knowing what the Bible says about God, because Satan's countermeasure is to send out many false prophets, John gives the command, test the spirits, test the doctrines according to its conformity of Christ. And, and so one of the things that Chris said last week is, is what teachers are saying the same thing that the apostles said about Christ? Is it the same thing the prophets said? Is it the same things Christ himself said, right? And uh, I do want to, because I'm allowed to do this, give one plug. For people who maybe attend this church on Sunday mornings, uh, if, if you struggle with the thought that God um, specifically appoints suffering, let's say, for example, like we discussed this last Sunday, Sunday morning, one, I've gotten a lot of really good questions since then. Like, well, okay, does God appoint rape? Does God appoint incest? Does God appoint murder? You know, those, those types of things. And uh, they're great questions. And the neat thing is we're discussing that Sunday. Okay, so how is God good and what does the Bible say about his holiness in his appointing and sovereignty even over evil and suffering? And so we're going to be flushing some of those, those things out this week. So John says you've got to understand what Christ says, what the apostles say about Christ, about his gospel, about the character of God in order that you may sniff out what is false among false teachers. This is important. Think about, uh, think about a lot of the conversations maybe that you've had with people who reject certain doctrines about God, or maybe even conversations you've had where you've outright rejected something that people are saying is clearly biblical. And ask yourself the question, what do I base my argument on? Think about that. Am I rejecting what you're saying because it goes against everything I thought I knew about God? Am I rejecting what you're saying because it makes me feel pretty uncomfortable? Am I rejecting what you say because the majority of people say something else? Am I rejecting what you say because it just makes me feel uncomfortable? Am I rejecting what you are saying because I don't think God would be like that, right? Or am I rejecting what you're saying because, no, you're speaking a heresy because the Bible says this clearly. And, and not, not a verse, right? I, I literally, we, we could actually do an exercise where the next hour we could build an entirely different doctrine on whatever we wanted to by just pulling out random verses. What does the totality of scripture say about God and about the gospel? And that's what John is saying. If, if you're going to be diligent enough to protect yourself by God's grace from false teachers and from the devil, you have got to know the word of God. And by the way, think about then why you have so many commands to abide in God's word day and night. Meditate on it day and night. Hide it up in your heart. Store it up in your word that you may not sin against God. Do not let this word of God depart from your mouth. Put it on the doorposts of your home, right? Frontlets before your eyes. It's, it's because the devil is prowling around seeking someone to devour with not wild and crazy things, but things that are just close enough to what you might believe, or there's a teaching where you're going, actually, yeah, that fits my belief system better. Sniff it out, John is saying. Sniff it out. Now, what's really cool is that John finishes this challenge in the first six verses, 
and immediately goes into some of the most crucial verses on love in the Bible. He moves from basically stating that those who are genuinely of God, those who God abides in, are those who hear the doctrines of the Bible. You have ears to hear. And now he goes on to say that those who are from God love like God loves and with his love. Um, JJ, can you go bring my mic down a little bit? Thanks, man. With that, let's look at verses 7 through 12 in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right, you really have a a unique three sections here, verses 7 and 8, verses 9 and 10, verses 11 and 12. They actually kind of work together really, really well. It's really split up into three parts. Verses 7 and 8 show us the source of love, um, meaning new birth. So we can love because we belong to God. And, and he's saying, if you, don't, if you don't love, you, it's proof you have not been born of God. And then he shows us the basis of this love in verses 9 and 10, namely the gospel. This is how God loved you. He sent his only son to be the wrath bearer, the propitiation for your sins. And then he ends with an exhortation, therefore, love. In fact, verses 7 and 11 are like bookends. We'll look at that. Look at verse 7. It says, beloved, let us love one another. Then you have explanation and then it finishes with an exhortation. Verse 11 almost says the same thing. Beloved, if God so loved us, which is what he explains in verses 9 and 10, we also lots lots of love one another. So verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, beloved, let us love one another. The only difference in the two verses, namely, is the if God loved us, right? If God so loved us, so loved us in a specific way, which is the meat in between. So you have bookends. So what is, what is John's purpose of these verses? Love one another. That's it. It's the bookends. And so he explains what that looks like, the seriousness of it, and how God loved us in the middle so that we can have a better understanding. It's like, you know, if I were to say, Chris, um, run out to the playground really quick. Okay. And then I just ended, I don't think he would probably listen to me, but it'd be, it would seem weird, okay? But first say, Chris, run up the playground really quick. I'm pretty sure my phone is there and my watch is dinging me that my wife is calling me. I can't answer here. I think it's an emergency. Would you go do it? This is how I communicate with my wife, go on the playground. Now there's some explanation. There's bookends. And so the, the, the initial command, the initial imperative might just seem like blank, but John is saying, Love one another. I'm going to tell you why this is so important. Then he basically says this. If you don't, you haven't been born of God. Okay, I want to love one another. If you just have a command, Gavin, love one another. Okay. And then sometimes we see these like commands. I'll make that important when I get there. There's other things I want to focus on first. And John is saying like, this is the most important thing. If you don't love one another, you are not born of God. So, when I say love one another, you want to go, okay, I want to love the beloved, first of all, right? Second of all, I want to love in a specific way. What's the love you're talking about? How do I love it? And that's why John explains, this is how God loved you. So when he says love one another, he's saying, love one another because that is fruit you've been born again. Second of all, there's a specific way you need to love, book and therefore love one another. And then he shares an application of this is how the world will see God. So we'll get there in a second. So look at verses 7 and 8, the source. The word beloved, also translated loved ones, let us love one another. Who is the one another? Beloved, let us love one another. Love whom? The saints. 
Now, at, we're going to come to this at the end when we get to verse 11 and 12. But this is really important. Um, and sometimes people will go, this is just fueling into the church is this clique. The church is this cult, etc. All the focus is on loving one another. And there's a way that the world will know that we are generally born of God in how we love one another. Why would we not take care of those whom God has called along with us in the same way that he has? But I'm going to make an uh, argument at the end that I think John makes that actually how we love one another is the means in which we reach the world. And it might not be in the way that you, you think. So we'll get there. Love the saints, John is saying. Love the saints. If you don't love the saints, you have not been born of God. It's important. We'll come back to it. John, look, he continues on. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I've been born again, and I know God if I love. In other words, John is saying the fruit, this is going to be important, we're going to spend some time on here. The fruit that is evident in my life that proves I've been born again is love. That's the fruit. Now, wrap your head around this for a little bit, because we talk a lot about like uh, you know works being fruit of genuine salvation. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. Evidence of that is that we are changed. We're a new creation. God is working in us, both the will and the work to his good pleasure. But there is an argument in James 2, and it's a biblical argument, and John makes the same argument in 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, in other words, if we say we have faith, James chapter 2, yet there are no works, they both say we lie. John says we lie. James says that faith can't save anyone. It's the same argument. So people who say, like, James is unique in that, it's not true at all. Jesus has the same kind of commands. If you are genuinely born again, you will bear fruit. And John is saying, the fruit is love. The fruit is love. Here's the fruit that you've been born again. You love. Now think about it. We talk about how we're known by our fruit. And I, I, I'm guilty of this a lot of times in my own life. I immediately think about, okay, what is fruit in my life? So I'm thinking about holiness. I'm thinking about sanctification. I'm thinking about how I've changed. I'm thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm conquering greed. I'm having some victories over anger. I'm not as lustful as I was 10 years ago. You know, it's like fill in the blank and you kind of measure yourself up to these very specific things that you think about like in your past. And you're going, is there fruit in my life? What's interesting is we, we typically think about fruit being things like, is my language different? right? Am I serving more? Am I more pure? Am I less angry? Is my thinking changed? And so we we put this context of of fruit, am I doing these different things? And John is actually saying the fruit that you've been born again is love. It seems broad, and it seems not specific, and it seems subjective in today's culture, and it's really none of those things. Think about it. This is how we know we belong to him, if we love one another. Think about Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 19. Paul is saying, keep yourself of the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's about to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, but before he gets to the fruit of the Spirit, he says, here are the works of the flesh. All right, he, so Paul's about to say, don't do these things. Don't produce, you're, you're either going to produce these wor- fruit, these works, or the Holy Spirit fruit and works. And so he gives us a list of works or fruit that is shown by those who are not in Christ. Here's the fruit. The works is the word he uses. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then he says, I warn you, sounds like John here, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who say, I fellowship with God while I walk in the darkness, while I do not practice the truth, Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so... So Paul says, don't produce these fruit. 
these works. Produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. Right? Now, what's, what's ironic is we have a tendency to say, okay, I need to kill sin. I need to bear fruit in my life. And so we, we become laser focused. And this actually, I think, is to some people's um, hindrance in their sanctification. It has been for me, for sure. I go, okay, where on this list do I need to be better? Sexual immorality, I need to be better. Impurity, I need to be better. Sensuality, I need to be better. Idolatry, I need to be better. Sorcery, okay, whatever. Enmity, uh, what does that mean? Uh, Strife, jealousy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need fits of anger, yeah. And so then it's like, I'm overwhelmed, (laughs) right? So it's like, okay, well, which one do I focus on first? Because I feel like if I don't, give one of these all of my attention, I just kind of give all of these bad fruits some of my attention, I'm not going to get better. I mean, seriously, if you read a list like that, it's deflating. It's like, hey, produce fruit. Be sanctified. You know, increase in godliness. And you're like, yeah, well, all right, I'm going to focus on anger. And so I'm working on my anger and I'm, you know, holding all in and I'm seeking to feed and I'm praying over it. And then meanwhile, I might be becoming really greedy. And so you're kind of like, well, what, what do I focus on? And John says something very powerful in 1 John chapter 4. Here's the fruit you should focus on. Love. Now, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? That love covers what? A multitude of sins. Now, don't miss this. This is gospel-focused for sure. God's love and how he loved us by sending Christ, verse 8 and 9, to be, or verse 9 and 10, to be the propitiation, the payment, the wrath bearer for our sins. That love has covered a multitude of sins. But I also think the application in 1 Corinthians 13, because Paul says in the beginning of chapter 14, pursue love. In other words, love one another And there's this covering of a multitude of sins, but it's also, it's covering my sin. So I see this blanket over these fruits of the flesh being, how do I defeat these things? Well, it's really neat. I don't have, I don't fight every single one of these works of the flesh with a different battle. They're all the same battle. So I don't have to go, okay, I got to focus my energy here on anger, and then I got to get to greed, and I got to, no, no, no. The way you defeat all sin is the same. Because it all comes to the same root problem. And you know what the root problem is? Self-love. Self-love. You give in to sin because you love yourself. Uh, Break this down. Go look back at these works of the flesh. This is really freeing. Why do people give in to sexual immorality? Why do I look at pornography? Uh, I don't look at pornography, just to be very clear. I'm giving a hypothetical question. Why does somebody look at pornography? I love the way it makes me feel. Right? That is self-love. Why do I give into idolatry? I love worshiping something that makes me feel good. I, I'm loving me. Why do I give into jealousy? Because somebody has something that I want, and I love myself so much that I'm going to be mad and angry about it. Why do I give into fits of anger? Because you need to know I'm right and you didn't meet my expectation and I love myself. Right? Go, the, the whole list is self-love. And so John says, this is how you know you've been born again. You love not yourself. Who? One another. Now, Ultimately, he's made the point that if anyone loves God, in all these chapters and verses leading up to it, so he's not breaking Jesus' great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. He's affirming it. He's laid a foundation of this is how you love God, this is how you abide in God, etc. And now he's saying this is how you know that you love God. This is how you know God is first. You will love one another. Look back at that list. Am I giving into sexual immorality if I love others more than myself? Probably not. If I have greater love for the image bearer that I want to see undressed on a screen than myself, I'm going to be brokenhearted. I'm going to hate sin. I'm going to pray for souls. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn from sin. Think about anger. If, if I'm ticked off at Abigail, which never happens, ask my closest friends who have been at my house, and I, you can ask AJ and Juice, I've never yelled at Abby in their presence. 
<laughs> I have, and I've repented within minutes, I, or at least asked for forgiveness. If I get angry at Abigail, it's because I'm loving myself. I cannot get angry at Abigail if I love her more than I love myself. My love for her is going to extend unbelievable grace and mercy. I want to build her up. I want to encourage her, even if it means self-sacrifice. Even if it means I swallow the pill of, I know she's wrong, but I, don't, I just love this woman. I want to build her up. I want to encourage her. I want to strengthen her. Or if I'm going to correct her, I'm going to correct her with unbelievable gentle compassion and tact, like Christ corrects his church. Right? And so all of this is like, well, how do I beat this? How do I defeat sin? How do I show fruit? It's love. All of it is love. The fruit that I am overcoming all of these sins is love. That's the fruit. I'm loving God first, and I'm loving others more than I love myself. And then Piper obviously would make the argument, all of that is for your own joy. It is this, uh, <laughs> it is, a, it's a holy selfishness. He probably wouldn't use those terms. I don't know that I like that term, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, it's not against your joy. It's actually for your joy, is the point. The greatest of these is love. And he says in verse 8, the one not loving has not come to know God because God is love. Paul makes it very clear. If you don't love one another, you are not born again. If the fruit of love is not evident in your life, you're not born again. How could, how could you be, John is basically saying. How could you possibly be born again if you love yourself more than anything else? Always, right? We're going to come to that perfected verse in verse 12 in a second. So this is, this is help for us. It, this is help for the person who's slave to pornography. This is help for the person who is angry all the time because John is saying, you remember, he's writing these things so that you may not sin. It's one of his purposes for the letter that Chase has made very clear. And John has said specifically, I write these things to you so you may not sin. So when John says, love one another, he's saying, love one another so that you may not sin. You want to kill sin? You want to so prove to be born again? You want to prove that you know God? You want to know God more? You want to have confidence in your assurance and your salvation? Love one another. Kill the sin. Know God. Love one another. Don't give in to self-centered love. It's the key to overcoming sin. It's the fruit. It's how you rid yourself of gossip, slander, jealousy, anger, etc. All right, now look at verse 9. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God... So, so now we've gone from... Here's how you do it. This is how you know you've been born of God. And now John's going to give a very specific example. Let me show you how God loved. This is how God loved. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, wrath bearer. He bore our wrath for our sins. The love of God has been revealed, shown, manifested in us or among us. It's in our midst in that God has sent his unique, the word means unique, one of a kind son, only begotten son into the world. And he did this in love for us, covering a multitude of sins, so that we might live through him. So, so this is cool. God crushed his son so that you'd be forgiven and know the love of God. John's saying, this is a very important part, that you would know the love of God that he has for you, but that's not the end all. So, he also revealed and loved you in such a way so that you may now live through him. That you may live with that love, through that love, specifically for one another, the beloved. Verse 10 shows us, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation concerning our sins, for our sins. This is, this is an important verse too for when you think about, and we've discussed this a lot over the last couple of years, uh, anything apart from faith is sin, Romans 14, Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, nobody, 
nobody in this world who is not in Christ can genuinely love. They can't. They can't. Because they're breaking the first commandment. God is not their God. They're not honoring God. They're not loving others. They're not accepting others. They're not serving others. They're not being sacrificial for others for the glory of God. So, I mean, if you, th- if you think about a military man who might be a noble person who lays down his life but is not a believer, even that sacrificial uh, act of love for his country or for, so that we may be free in America is not biblical love, actually, because it's not first and foremost for the glory of God. It's not out of love for God. This is, I mean, this is a big thing. You have not loved. God loved you. In other words, you cannot love until God has manifested his love among you and that Christ is your propitiation. Christ has died for you. He is your Lord. You belong to him. Now that's offensive wildly to our world. But then you got to ask, okay, well why do you think that people can love outside of God? Prove that to me. Show me in scripture. Show me in scripture how, how anybody can love correctly. Now look, they can have a lot of close counterfeits, noble, nice, good things on earth, however you want to define good, right? But the point is, people need to realize that nothing, nothing is obedient to God, nothing pleases God outside of being under Christ. If you are not in Christ, God looks at you in the depths of your sin and is not pleased with anything. And those whom God looks through his Son... He is pleased in everything. We'll talk about that in a second. Not because of any of your good works, but because of the fully accomplished, perfect, law-keeping, God-glorifying Son, Jesus. We don't love first. We love because He loved us. So, our fruit in loving one another, this, this is why it's evident that you belong to God. You love one another is evident that God has loved us. That, that's the point John is making. So the evidence of you loving one another is evidence, oh, God must love you. Because you wouldn't be able to love if God didn't love you. You would not be able to do these things if Christ wasn't in you, if you weren't living through Christ. And it's, it's important to note that we were in sin and deserving God's wrath. And God sent Jesus to be the wrath bearer for us while we were still living in our sins. So, so we have nothing to boast about here. Everyone saved tonight can't go to your neighbor and say, I'm saved, you're not, na 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 boo boo. You, you've missed the gospel. There's, there's nothing to boast about. Is it, it, nobody says na 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 boo boo. <laughs> has, has anyone in here never heard that statement? Okay, just, I had a lot of weird eyes. It's the first time I've ever said na 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 boo boo publicly, I think. John says, to love, you've got to love like God. This isn't just a subjective, hey, love one another, and then you figure that out, and I'm sure it will be fine. There's a specific way John wants us to love one another, and he gives us the example of God. And here's what's amazing, especially when you think about fits of anger and jealousy, and how do you cover that sin? Love. Love for others, not self-love. God sacrificially loved us when we did not deserve it. That's the point. That's the radical love, right? That, that's what sets you apart from the world. Don't, don't love people selfishly. Love people sacrificially. That, that, is, that, that is the love John is talking about. Consider others more important than yourself. Lay down your lives, Paul says, for the sake of the elect. And so you, you have this mentality of, I'm going to love in such a way that even if it's sacrificial and even if you don't deserve it, I'm, I'm remembering gospel, gospel, gospel. Who am I to not give you that kind of love when that is exactly by nature the kind of love I've received? That's why John is saying, If you don't love people in that way, it shows you don't understand that that's how you were loved. Therefore, you may not be in Christ. John's saying, check check yourself. This is how you know that you abide in God, that 
you are born again if you love one another. Now, when I say we must love what God loves, we also must hate what God hates. So biblical godly love also hates in a biblical way. God hates sin. So you so that leaves us with a question, right? Okay. How do I love my sister and my brother in Christ when they're living in sin? This is where biblical understanding of love is crucial. I don't love them so much in a cultural feel-good way that I'm not going to confront them in their sin. I also don't love them in an abrasive way where I'm going to come in like a bull in a china shop and tell them that, you know, you're going to hell, right? I, I mean, there is, there's a way to do this. John is saying, love what God loves, but in that love, you hate what God hates, right? This is why justification, God loves us, even when we're still sinners, is partner with sanctification. God loves us too much to keep us the way we are. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. He causes us to be holy. We're to do the same way. So you ask yourself, well, how can you genuinely love someone while hating something in their life? It's possible because God does it in our life every single day. Think about this. Edwards gives a great example. Jonathan Edwards gives a great example of this small lens and a big lens, okay? So this is important. God looks at me today in the big lens through Christ. I am perfectly righteous before God. God is totally, I believe, right? God is totally pleased. He's totally pleased with me because I'm in Christ. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's all Christ, but he looks at me through the propitiation, the, the blood of Christ. Therefore, God is absolutely pleased. He could not be more pleased with me. And yet, wait a second, I've sinned today. So is God pleased with my sin? No. And so here's this concept of who I am in standing and how I live in practice. It's the wide lens, God looks at me through Christ, but then there's the small lens, the narrow lens, where God can look at me pleased in Christ and yet not be pleased with the way I'm living sometimes. So not be pleased with the sin I'm giving into. But it doesn't contradict the fact that I've been justified in God and that God is pleased with me as his child because of Christ. So I can look at Ben Seamark, right? And I can love my brother in Christ and I can say, I love you a ton. I'm sacrificially serving you. And yet I can say, and in that love, you're living in a specific sin. And I want to come alongside of you. And I want to comfort you and encourage you to endure. And I want to help you. And I want to pray with you. And I want to seek God with you. And I want to, you know, store up God's word in our heart that we might not sin against God. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to, I'm going to, I hate the sin in your life. I hate it. I got to, I hate it. But I love you. And that, that is how we, I mean, there's a lot of passages on church discipline, how you approach one another, things like that. That's not the purpose of tonight's message. The purpose of what I'm saying right now is that it is possible to love somebody and yet hate something in their life. Then how you execute that is crucial. It takes a lot of tact and other scripture that is not in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Except to say that this is what God has done for us. But he leaves us with an exhortation that I want to close with this evening. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, remember the other bookend from verse 7, we also ought to love one another. Loved ones, if God loved you in this way, you also ought to love one another. Look at what Christ did, look at who you were, and then love in the same way. And then verse 12, here's where we're going to end with a a couple things tonight. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's my favorite verse of the section. No one has ever seen God. And he might go, pause. I thought God revealed himself to Moses. Mm, God revealed a part of his glory, remember, to Moses. You think, well, what about all the theophanies? Well, what about, you know, Jesus? Okay, Jesus would be the manifestation. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. But let me ask you this. In the totality of Scripture, is Jesus' bodily presence here with us tonight? No. He, he is the faith, you know, the, the beauty of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Paul says in Corinthians and Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
When we're in heaven, we're worshiping Jesus, right? And you have the, the fullness of God, the whole Trinity, and in the face of Christ. And so you have this, this absolutely, God has revealed himself in Christ, but he is an invisible God. Moses himself said, or it, was, it is said about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, that, um, where, where is, where's my Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27? There it is. Moses left Egypt, enduring as seeing him who was invisible. Seeing him who is invisible by faith this was, the, was the point here, right? Exodus chapter 33, in this exchange with God and Moses, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I, in Isaiah chapter 6, interesting enough, you have the seraphim who are before God's presence, and they have two wings covering what? Their eyes. God cannot be seen presently with human eyes. 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in part. Right? Then we shall see fully. We shall know fully. Now we know in part. But we can see a glimpse of his glory as we reflect his love. So think about 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, namely Christ, are being transformed into the same image, Christ, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God demonstrated his love in the display of Christ, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. We're being transformed in the same image, Romans 8, conformed in the image of Christ. And this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. We love because he first loved us. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you see this beautiful exchange of how Christ reveals God and how we actually reveal God's glory. No one has ever seen God, 1 John 4, 12. But then he's making a point. It's in the context of a full-blown point. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The point John is making is you reveal God to a world in how you love. Now this is not New, it's not distinct. So, it, just turn to Romans 1 with me. John is saying, there is a way that the invisible God becomes visible to the world. There is a way the invisible God becomes visible to the world, and it is how we love one another. It is in how we love one another. In Romans chapter 1, you see, beginning in verse 17, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they're without excuse. And then it goes on to basically say, but these people love themselves and have created idols for themselves. And therefore, Romans chapter 2 says, they ought to expect the wrath of God. God's patience, his kindness is meant to lead them to repentance, but they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment, right? Is, is what Romans 2 says. But Paul says something amazing in Romans chapter 1. That God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. Now Romans 1, we talked about this briefly on Sunday morning in, in uh, our Sunday school class, does not, this is not a verse that says, you see, People can be saved by looking at the stars. That's not true. It, Romans 1 is making a point they have no excuse. They're, they're under God's wrath for worshiping idols. Nowhere in Romans 1 do you find anything that hints that somebody can be saved by creation and believing that there's a God because of creation. You don't find it there. In fact, in Romans 10, Paul makes the, the exact opposite argument. How can they call on him whom they've not heard? How will they hear unless somebody preaches? How will someone preach unless someone is sent? So Paul's argument is, you better go to the nations 
and preach Jesus to them. How can they call on Jesus as Lord? Anyone who confesses him as Lord will be saved. But if you don't confess him as Lord, because Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. So if they don't know Jesus, how will they be saved? But what you have here, the point of this, is Romans 1 says that creation is revealing invisible attributes. Eternal nature, divine power. Or divine nature, eternal power. Divine nature, eternal power. There's another invisible attribute, that of love, that creation does not display, meaning trees and the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. It doesn't. It, it, it screams there's a God. It screams there's a powerful God. It screams there's an eternal God. But it doesn't scream there's a loving God. In fact, this is why many people who believe in a God hate him. They look at creation and go, yeah, but if a God created all this, then why did he allow so much evil and pain and suffering? It's terrible. And so they reject, because God's invisible attributes in creation, meaning trees and things like nature, does not scream love. But he did create something to display that love. Whom? Us. The church. We also are God's creation. We also are revealing his invisible attributes. That's what John is saying in 1 John 4. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, the world sees God's invisible attribute of love through the church, through the believer. Now, this is, this is powerful. So think about the fact, before we end with an application of that, think about this thought, his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? Jordan Ball, do you love perfectly? John says that God's love is perfected in you. Well, let me ask you a question, Justin. Justin, Jordan. Let me ask you a question, Jordan. Are you righteous fully before God? Fully justified before God? Yes. Do you live perfectly righteous? No. It's the same thing with love. Think When it says God's love is perfected in us, think justification and sanctification. I am perfectly righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ, and I do not live perfectly in that righteousness. Rather, I aim to increase in my righteousness and be holy as God is holy, right? And God is doing that in me. He is sanctifying me completely, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the same way, I have the love of God perfected in me, yet I do not always live perfectly in that love. And it says, God is loving through us. It's the same exact thing. That is how God's love is perfected in us. Now now notice this. This is the invisible attribute of God that we are revealing to the world. Well, many people, as I mentioned in the very beginning, here's what we come to a close. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, beloved, let us love one another. And you go, well, what about, what about lost people? Lost people is implied in the one another. Think about it. John is using this as a call to fellowship, how you act as a church inwardly, and it's a call to missions. Why has Christ not come back today? What does the Bible say? Why has Christ not yet returned? Yeah, Peter says God is, is not slow to fulfill his promise like many count slowness. He's not willing that any of his beloved, in the context of those verses, he's not willing that any of his beloved should perish. Christ has not come back yet, Because not every single person whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life has yet confessed him as Lord. And God is not willing that a single one of those names perish. It's the argument Peter makes. And so this, when you think about love one another, the implication is, yes, we ought to love the one another's in our church. And there's one another's who have not yet been converted in our city. And we have no idea who they are or who they aren't. So this does not mean we do not love the world. It's actually fuel to say, this is how you reach the world. Go and love the world and love them in such a way that they would see God's love through you and then know Christ. 
In the same way that creation is revealing the invisible attributes of God, his eternal, na- <laughs> eternal power and divine nature, you have been created and sent in order that you may reveal God's invisible attribute of love. You love your enemy, right? You love your community. You love them enough to serve them sacrificially in order that you would have an opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel. Now, it is important to, to, to just smash into a million pieces a terrible quote right here. You know the quote, um, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? You ever heard that? It's cute. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. The, the point that the person is trying to make is preach the gospel and how you live. Live in such a way that reflects Christ. The problem is if that's all you do and you don't preach, exhort, speak the good news, no one can be saved by you displaying good works. The only way to preach the gospel is to use words. So when I say love one another in such a way that they may see the invisible attribute of God, that has to biblically be coupled with, and you better preach the gospel. And when they see you sacrificially loving and they see the attribute of God, his invisible attribute of love, and they hear this is the love of Christ and this is how God demonstrated his love for you, which is what John is showing in 1 John 4, 7. Love one another. This is how God loved you. When that is coupled together, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, opens eyes to see Christ as glorious. People are converted. It's a, it's a dynamic pair. And so the call to love one another is not a call to stay within the walls. It's a call to missions. It is a call to go and reach the lost. So to conclude, John calls those born of God to love. Simply put, those loved by God love like God. And we are to seek a love that is beyond us. It's what born-again people do. It's how you kill your sin. It's the fruit of your salvation. I hope maybe some of you this week can think about specifics in your life and that's how you'll aim to fight it, by loving one another, loving God. It points us back to the gospel, how God has loved us. It humbles you, it thrusts you forward in worship and it's how you reach the world. It's how you reveal the invisible God to the world around you and how you love one another like Christ and proclaiming and preaching the gospel. We are gonna do small groups tonight. I hope you'll stay. We have four questions based on tonight's message. I'm going to pray for us, and then um, I don't know how you guys typically split. Have you been doing one group or starting here? All right, we're all going to be in here. So I'll pray, and we'll do small groups. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for how you've loved us. I pray for a fruitful time of discussion tonight. You guide our words. Help us to be thoughtful about what the Bible says. I pray that you season our speech with salt that we would uh, exhort one another to live godly lives uh, for the sake of your glory, for those who are perishing, and for our own joy. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.